Hey, everyone. It's Jeff. Thanks for joining me on the Real Men Hour podcast. Today, I share a riveting conversation about shame that I had with author and therapist David Bedrick. But first, a few things to share. For those interested in exploring writing as a healing and spiritual practice, my next Writing Your Way Home course begins at soulshapinginstitute.com on July 19th. I'm slowly morphing my courses in the direction of a more personal and connective writing experience for those who want it. This will be particularly helpful for those who are interested in the Writing Your Life Story series, which will begin this autumn. And also for those who then wish to take their expression to the next level and actually write a book about their lives. I can't shake the belief that everyone has a story to tell and that in the heart of writing it is the healing and restoration that we need. Does it matter if we write it for the purposes of publication or simply for ourselves? Writing our life story is a wonderful way to honor our journey and to make sense of our experiences. It's also a great way to get caught up with ourselves and ready ourselves for the next stage of our life journey. So let me tell you a little bit about David. David Bedrick is a counselor, educator, and attorney. He was an adjunct faculty for the University of Phoenix and the Process Work Institute in the U.S. and Poland. He's the founder of the Santa Fe Institute for Shame-Based Studies, where he offers facilitation training to deepen the skills and awareness of therapists, coaches, and healers, as well as workshops for individuals to further their own personal development. He's a writer for Psychology Today and author of three books, Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. And You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover, 17 Women's Stories of Hunger, Body Shame, and Redemption. David's also in the process of writing Unshamed, which will be published by North Atlantic Books in 2024. I'm excited to read it. Before we tackle the question of shame and unshaming, so very fundamental to our individual and collective actualization, let's listen in for a moment to one of the great ones, Trevor Hall from his song Arrows, as he reminds us of the heart often buried below the weight of our shame and emotional armor, but always there to remind us of the world of feeling and of our very own significance. This journey's got me bleeding a certain kind of feeling ah, But I can never leave it Good God, I know I need it ah, Arrows come straight for my heart David it's great to be with you. Yes, feel the same. <laughs> we talk about shame and unshaming and all things shame related today. And I thought I'd just begin with a quick quote yeah. from my, one of my quotes books called Spiritual Graffiti that came out some years ago. I'm just going to read this in. Public service announcement. Due to the collective effect of collective sharing and loving intentionality, the shame train has derailed at the junction of self-belief and divine uniqueness. The engine couldn't run on self-hatred any longer. All formerly shamed passengers, please disembark the train. You are free. You are free. A new, tra- a new train 
fueled by healthy self-regard and sacred purpose, will be along momentarily to pick you up. No tickets required on this self-love train, just a growing faith in your own magnificence. All aboard. So I thought we'd start on a positive note before we talk about the inherently shame nature of humanity, where all of this comes from. (laughs) Um, Some vision of possibility. So you're doing work around shame and unshaming. If you could just share a little bit of what that means to you and some part of your story that led you there. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I got to say one thing. First, I love that you talk about sacred purpose, life paths, things like that, because sometimes in the healing, wellness, whatever we call that industry or thinking or consciousness, people are involved largely with getting over difficulties. I'm healing from my problems. Super important. I'm dealing with my traumas. Yes, let's do that. Forgetting that people also are not only made better, but then they to live out one's purpose, right? One's path, one's to give one's gifts to the world. Sometimes people leave that out of the healing equation. I believe very much in coded paths for humanity. I I saw glimmers of and glimpses of my path at an early age, and all of it turned out to be true. And when I didn't walk that path, I experienced what I call truth truth aches, which are indicators that I was off path. And and I believe there is an interconnectedness or a sameness ultimately about this emotional healing work and sacred purpose. Because I think at this stage of human development, it is sacred purpose for most of us to do the work that nobody in our ancestry ever had an opportunity in their survivalist consciousness to do. And I think nothing grows us more more with respect to our capacity to honor our purpose and also brings the offering through. Quite often, the things we heal become the thing we bring to the world. I think it's all inextricably linked. Presence and purpose and healing ultimately all becomes exactly the, the same thing. But having said that, I think the shame piece is unbelievably important. I spent a lot of time in soul shaping with it and in my therapeutic process around it because if you don't believe that you have value, you will not take to the path, you will not look for the path, you will not have the energy to forge your way through to become the path of purpose. You will just sit back away from everything, alienated from your own true path and purpose, believing that which you've internalized with respect to shame. And, and the whole marketing structure functions around shame. I mean, you we, people often buy things because they're somehow convinced they're not cool enough until they do. I mean, the whole thing is built on self-hatred. So we have a $70 billion diet industry that mostly banks on shame. Not that people shouldn't take yeah. care of their bodies. Yeah, yeah. They're not banking on your health and well-being for the most part. They're banking on gender and sexism and women feeling bad about their bodies and being willing to buy things that aren't working. So, yeah. Absolutely. Self-hatred is big business. Self-hatred. Big business. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Imagine a marketed world that was built only on self-love. You only purchase the thing that will truly amplify, echo, intensify, and activate your healthy self-regard. I mean, you know, that'd still be an economy. They don't have to worry about it. It would just be the kind of economy that leads us in a self-loving direction and therefore in a direction that doesn't act out inappropriately, Mm -hmm. which so often emanates from the shame material, I think. You're talking about a paradigm shift. This is why it's, to me, what's 
beautiful and difficult about the vision you're bringing forward. It's a paradigm shift, meaning people have to change the fundamental way they see themselves. I'm somebody who's screwed up, who needs to be fixed. That's not an easy shift. I think that's a generational shift. And I'm hoping that's we're in the midst of that, certainly for some folks. But shifting someone, shifting client's perspective from, David, I'm screwed up. I'm this way, I'm this way. Here's the four reasons why I'm screwed up to here's what's happening inside of me. Help me make meaning, sacred purpose, and intelligence out of that. The latter being a more loving thing. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm going through all this stuff. Jeff, help me make meaning and intelligence. Help me understand the story that lives in me that makes sense of how I'm experiencing myself. As opposed to, I'm a screwed up human being. Can you make my anxiety go away? My depression go away? My relationship patterns go away? Absolutely. And think, oh, and, and think of it this way. This is what's been happening for me, at least. For the longest time, I had this sort of um, superheroic vision of possibility where I was going to clear all my emotional debris and become a perfected superheroic being. Okay. <laughs> and I know that the superhero fantasy sort of got me through the craziness of my childhood. You know, self-actualization imagery, reading Maslow gave me something to strive for. But now what I really believe, since we're part of a sociology, there's no way to avoid it. Even if somebody makes a little bit of progress with respect to healing, for example, a generational abandonment wound, they are absolutely pioneers on this human path. Mm -hmm. And instead of beating the shit out of themselves because everything didn't get fixed, what about if we start celebrating Every little bit of progress we've made in our ancestry. My grandmother used to say, Jeffrey, you're doing the work that I couldn't do. And it Beautiful. meant something to her. Booby loved that I was doing the work that she couldn't do. So, and then we celebrate at the end of our lives, instead of looking back and comparing ourselves to some completely bullshit projected version of perfected being that's been sold to us on Instagram and all the rest of it, we just go, wow. I was able to hold the space for reality more deeply than my family. I cleared more of the abandonment wound than my father and my grandfather did. I was able to authentically relate in a much more subtle and attuned way than anybody from my first and a generational experience was. I, I really am carrying the torch as a pioneer towards a more conscious, healthy, mm -hmm. nervous system regulated way of being with slightly less amounts of shame. Oh my mm -hmm. God, is that not a mitzvah? Amazing. Maya Angelou, the died, of, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, but great African-American author and poet and intellect. And she said in one of her poems, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. Beautiful, that person beautiful. dreamt of me standing mm -hmm. here, six feet tall, high heels, yes. dark skin, no sleeves to my shirt. So six feet tall, plus my high heels. Plus a big body with darker skin standing in a stage and having thousands of people listen to me. They dreamt of me. Isn't that amazing? Do, doing something with her life, whatever yes. it may be, however yeah. subtle or huge, that they couldn't yeah. do. That they could not do. standing there yeah, right, nice. with her story, with her rape story, with her race story, and standing there educating yeah. yeah, American men, many others. Beautiful, beautiful, buddy. Beautiful. So tell us, how did so you wrote a book called Unshaming? I'm writing one now. I've written three books and I'm on my fourth. Mm -hmm. It's called Unshamed. Well, I think it's going to stay unshamed. It's 
Mm-hmm. I'm imagining it's going to stay unchained. And what does that mean to you? Unchained means shame. The way I understand shame, and it's not just a theoretical, it's the way it empirically shows up. This is how it shows up in people if you study them as opposed to theory. Shame shows up as an inner witness. And what I mean by that, if something inside of me looks at what's happening for me, my experience, and says one of two things makes these conclusions or treats me like that, even if it doesn't have the words, the conclusion is I don't matter or something's wrong with me. As opposed to your experience really matters. You belong here. Please believe in yourself, believe what's happening for you and bring out, as you're saying, your purpose, your gifts, your intelligence, your reactions, your anger, your sadness, your intimacies, Please bring those forward. It doesn't happen. So shame has that kind of a, it's a witnessing function. And it happens, in my view, mostly around abuse. If you're really hurt, let's say early in life or in a past generation, let's say early in life for as a story that would work. If you're really hurt by somebody and somebody witnesses that by that didn't really happen or it's not a big deal or don't make so much of it or it happened because gaslighters, or, gaslighters. or gaslighting or denying you or denying your experience or telling you're making things up all those things if the person witnesses that and you're vulnerable like a child would be or who or many adults me too then that goes in and then i start witnessing all my experiences like that why am i like instead of thinking jeff that pisses me off i think why am i upset why am i getting triggered what's wrong with me Right. Or I think it doesn't really matter. So why did it hurt you? Big deal, David. You don't really matter. So once that overall witness, I call that a master variable shame, meaning it's not about one thing. It's a whole viewpoint about myself that disconnects me from my experience and the sharing of my experience. I don't think, Jeff, I don't think I don't agree with you. That upsets me when you say that I just walk around thinking something's wrong with me. Of course, I never say anything to you. I get to go work on myself and work myself over. But I no longer have an intimate relationship with you because I don't tell you how I feel. We don't work anything out. I certainly don't tell you about good ideas I have that I want to share with you as gifts. None of that happens. So the whole it's not just one thing, shame over it, like circumscribes the whole being. And then people live in that place for whatever generations or a lifetime. And what's required then, in my view, is some people talk about shame needing resilience or self-acceptance. And those are really good words. The Brene Browns of the world and others would say, I need to have people around me who start to see me in different ways. Absolutely true. I think one step further, if I can not only be humble in a false way, that you can actually unshame. You can not only build a resilience and a immune system to it, which you can, right? If there's a lot of love around me, I'm more immune. If a lot of people around me think I'm wonderful and I take some of that in, then somebody puts me down, then it doesn't go in as deeply. But you can actually unshame. And unshame means to do exactly the opposite of that witness. Instead of gaslighting you, denying you, telling you what you have is your, all the things that happen for you are a function of your screwed up being Instead of doing that, I witness you, only I witness you in a different way. I believe in what's happening for you. If you sneeze at the right moment, I say, well, that maybe that's the perfect sneeze. I'm exaggerating, but it's like that. It's a radical belief that you are part of nature and are showing up like nature does, meaning it's intelligent. It doesn't mean you should be doing certain things. 
doesn't mean you should be cutting yourself with a knife and potentially putting a needle in your arm or potentially losing your life because you took too much drugs, for instance. But it does mean, and this is the, the, the distinction that I try to make with people. Let's take the needle in the arm thing. That person could take too much and die. That's scary. I don't want that person to do that. If I could stop that person, I would stop that person. But if I work with that person in an unshaming way, I think they're doing something that has an intelligence in it. Not the literal, I don't want to lead them to literally, but what are they doing? Why put cocaine versus heroin? And people have these deep motivations and hungers, deep needs. Again, not for the drug, but for an experience that they're not getting in their life. In other words, they have a deep need and they're reaching for things that are not great. But they're reaching for it. And if we help them find the meaning, as opposed to the stupidity, we know about the stupidity. But if we help them find the what I'm calling, quote unquote, the intelligence in what they're doing, the organic hunger and something very specific, then we unshame it. And then they make connection with those deeper things. Then it's easier than to remove that substance or those patterns because the person removes it with a profound belief in who they are, as opposed to I'm a screwed up person. Mm-hmm. That's good a personness, then those supreme, those sacred purposes don't show up. They just think they're a mess. Yeah. 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 And we want them, that we want that person to, for instance, some people I've worked with on addictive substances. Some of those people, I'm just thinking about a law firm, and we both of us have a legal uh, background and drinking uh, the alcoholism in law firms really high. I remember working with a number of people in a law firm on their martini lunches, right? And I was like, let me hear, and then some of that's not so good because some of these people are really suffering and are alcoholics and having all the problems that are involved with, with abusing the substance. But then I say, tell me about when you're drinking martinis, what's it like? Imagine you had one. Don't drink one. Not supporting you to drink martinis or not. That's another story, whether you can, how much you're doing. What's it like? And then the few people sit around, they kind of, and they start smiling. Oh, we talk about this and we talk about, we share what a jerk that, that judge was. And we share stories with each other. I used to be this guy's opponent and we're both sitting there joking about stuff. So a whole bunch of camaraderie, the, the other side of the legal thing, you and I are against each other. I'm going to try to hurt you and try to hurt me. This whole thing breaks down in the martinis. <laughs> so those people then need to, some of them needed to learn. I'm going to say it this way to become like a martini for their, for their callings. Not with the drink, meaning I'm a martini. That means let's loosen up. Let's talk about stuff. Okay, before we get down to business and fight it out, how about this, judge? Isn't this crazy, the shit we have to get into? So they're actually bringing in the medicine of the atmosphere they're creating with the substance. And I do that because I, so I'm not thinking it's only stupid and bad and wrong for them to drink. Right. I think that they're actually doing it is intelligence. It's the longest story. I see. I see. I see. In other words, there's a. It may not be the healthiest thing, but there is an intentionality somehow behind it. Yeah, is what and you're it's saying. almost always, and it's almost always unconscious. Like people, I've worked with cigarette smokers. I don't know why my addiction is today. It's not my my main thing, but it's an important example. I've worked with many people who smoke cigarettes, and no one's ever asked them this question, Jeff. What's it like when you smoke a cigarette? That seems like the most fundamental. I'm not thinking you should smoke it. I'm not trying to encourage you to smoke. No, no, you're just asking what it feels like. Grandmother died of lung cancer. I don't want you dying of lung cancer. What's it like? And you know what people say to me? They don't know. They smoke cigarettes for 20 years. They'll say, well, I'm self-medicating. That's not an experience. That's an idea they got from a blog, right? 
And I remember working with one person, a woman, and I gave her a pencil. I took a pencil in my hand. I said, put this pencil in your hand and make believe you're smoking. Show me what you do. They're like, well, I just want to stop. I want to help you stop. But I want to know what you're doing first. And I don't know what you're doing psychologically. What's the experience? So she puts the cigarette in her mouth, this, this pencil. She puffs and she, go, she looks up in the air. Her head goes back and she goes. And I said, keep doing that. When your head goes back and you look up in the sky and you blow that smoke, what's happened? She says, oh, it's like I'm on vacation. I just left. I went somewhere. I said, when do you smoke the most? She says, I smoke the most with my husband. I said, what would go? Let's make believe he's sitting there talking and you're like this. She says, yeah, I'm always trying to listen to him and be a really good person. I never get a break. Now, why would it be hard for her to say, be your husband, given I'm talking about a woman that's probably Mm -hmm. 80 right now in that generation, say to a male person, potentially. Um, you know what? I'm not only interested in being your ear. I have other things on my mind. That's going to take some, some, some empowerment for her to do that. But the cigarette helps her do it. For a moment, she doesn't know who she is. She doesn't give a shit about anything. And she's in the sky after a hard day of work and taking a break. So she has a gender problem, a social problem around sexism and her ability to be free to not be an ear for a man in this person. And she has a freedom process around being in this guy, getting a break after taking care of kids and working all day. So she needs some support. Cigarettes are her best. I'm putting this in quotes, everybody, because I don't mean it's a good ally, but it's the ally she found. And yeah. I would like to know what the ally is so I can help her actually get that allyship without damaging her own. Right. So if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that what you're doing with clients is that you're you're looking at the deeper meaning or intentionality behind their habits in order to figure out what would be a healthier way for them to meet the need rather than a unhealthy way to meet the need. That's a great way to say it. And to be in touch with the need because the people don't, because people smoke two packs a day for 20 years. That person is, she doesn't know what she's doing. No, no, no. Well, that's, yeah. this is, this is an automatic pattern. Conscious it's automatic. Pattern. Yeah. You're trying to bring consciousness to the automatic pattern. I think, that's right. Which is great. So for you, within your clients aside for the moment, for you, within your own lived experience, where has shame resided and where does shame reside now? And perhaps I'll talk about my experience with it as well, but I'd like to hear yours first. The two places that, and there's so many places, but the two places that come to my mind, one is around knowing when I'm hurt. But because I grew up in a violent home with a father who used fists, fists and belts to express his rage, that's not a pleasant speaking series. That's a tough experience. Then I had a mother, remember I talked about the witness, who said that didn't really happen. You're being overdramatic. Your father would never hurt you. So I get the violence, right? And I internalize some of that. Sometimes I beat on myself and tell myself I'm no good. My father lives inside me. But then I get... What I call a shaming witness. Something says, why are you complaining? Nothing's going wrong. You don't need a break. You're not hurting. You're not exhausted. You didn't have, you don't have a headache. You don't have a stomach ache and need to, and need to not drink coffee today. How come I'm out of touch with the simple experience of that hurts? This doesn't feel good. Right, right, so right. Good today. Because, because you need this. Yeah, go ahead. Because in you, you, so you have an internalized scapegoater, your father taking yeah. his shit out on you. 
and an internalized gaslighter, your mother denying that this there was That's a right. scapegoater that beat the shit out of you. That's right. Go, and then I call that it. that mother figure. I call her a shaming witness because now mm-hmm. she looks at me and quote unquote mothers me. There's great mothers out there, right? So I'm not putting down motherhood. Yeah, yeah. She mothers me in a way, and then I need someone to remind me that to, that maybe I need to rest that I'm hurting. How come I'm I'm just out of touch with hurting? Yeah, you, well, right, right. She's got the survivalist mantra, which is just don't look back. That's just right. be happy for what you have right. and we'll step forward, which is probably what she had to do with your father to survive. That's right. She, that's her survival thing. So then if I'm in relationship and I get hurt, I think what's wrong with me? Why am I, th- why am I getting triggered? I don't think, oh, Jeff, that stung a little bit. I don't, I don't even know that's in me <laughs> to say such a thing. Yeah, yeah. I got it those. Are, those many are your, different, many mm-hmm. different levels. I'm kind of more or less out of touch. And if I'm in an, and if I'm in an abusive dynamic, I've been that with the certain teachers and stuff. I don't know I'm being injured by a person they're abusing me. Mm-hmm. How do I not know? I don't even know it hurts. You, you, know you, you, you could not know it hurts. <laughs> because you've got these two internalized voices of shame, essentially. Right. You're to it blame and, and nothing happened. Yeah. And that's not people say, how can you be out of touch with her? I've had people come to me with bruises. Black and blue marks on their bodies and say they're not hurting. It didn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. That's just, I know some people are tough, but people are, do get injured and just don't know it. That, that's how potent shame can be from if it's an abuse story. You cannot know you're hurting. Yeah. And so what techniques or approaches have helped you to dissipate these internalized voices of shame and to find a more self-loving reference point? I mean, the unshaming process means... If I tell you a story about my father or, or something happened yesterday or somebody put me down online and actually and I said, Jeff, you know, yesterday I wrote something on social media and this person said some, something to me. And then you might kind of notice me wince. I just winced when I said that. You might say, David, did that sting a little bit? And I'm like, you know what? It shouldn't hurt me. I'm 67 years old. I've worked on myself. I can take anything. So I've had an, fortune enough to people who can say, Take a moment, David, and see. It looks like that didn't only land so easily for you. And then if a person creates an atmosphere where it's okay to be hurt, even though I'm 67 and I've been counseling people by a seemingly nobody online that I don't even know, if they create that atmosphere and maybe I work a little somatically, let me go take a moment and feel my body. Yeah, I can feel it. Ooh, yeah. And now I'm making sounds like I'm a hurt person, right? My shoulders go up. I kind of inhale and my shoulders go up. I'm kind of like, yeah, that kind of stung. Now I'm in touch with my whole body is my body's free to act like a hurt body. It winces a little bit. It withdraws a little bit. Maybe it fists go up because I want to punch that person back. I'm a little pissed. Now I'm in touch with all that experience because somebody witnessed me noticing, believing that it's really in me and it's okay to have that. And then I notice, wow. And then I, next time I talk to you, I say, ah, another one of those things happened online. It really stunned. And then if you're a good brother, you kind of say, ah, I know, or that happens to me, or what happened, or whatever. You witness me as if that's a reasonable thing. And that hurts. That makes things better. So I'd call that loving witnesses. And I've had many in my life. Some are therapists. Some are people who just friends. Some are a partner who loves me <laughs> enough to notice the uh, moods that I'm in that I don't notice. Yeah, it's good to have validators for sure. I think, you know, some of the things that helped me to shift from a negative self-concept, let's say an internalized shame, to a healthier self-concept 
I mean, I, I wrote some a piece about it not that long ago. Um, you know, one of them was just sort of doing things that called me and proving to myself that I could do them. So that was helpful. Expressing my truth, particularly in childhood, even though it put me in harm's way, preserved yeah. the integrity of my being and reinforced my value. And doing copious amounts of healthy anger work, not the unhealthy anger work you described with your dad. But, you know, hanging out with Hal Lowen or All Alone and hitting a mattress or hitting a cube with a baseball bat, taping a picture of the motherfucker to the cube and smashing it, shredding it, actually helped me to uh, regain a sense of my own value and dissipate shame. Every, every strike of the bat was a statement from me. And every, every word uttered against those who fucked with me reinstated or initially provided for me a sense that I actually existed. I had efficacy and impact yeah. and that I actually had value. I, I, I think that the in my childhood, the somatic work, the rage work, the anger work, the tantruming work the, yeah. was my way of pushing out shame so I could come back to a freshness mm -hmm. of appreciation and prove mm -hmm. to myself that I mattered enough to myself that I would speak my truth to every motherfucker that stepped on my path. You know? That's so important. That's so important. So many you can't people. do it with everybody because yeah. there's dangers out there, but you can yeah. move it out somatically, yeah. which is yeah. at least a big part of the battle, I think. That's right. Even if you can't, even if I can't say fuck you to somebody for whatever reason, yeah. it's not safe financially, physically, emotionally, knowing that politically, knowing that it's in me and that it belongs in me, that's a huge thing. It's a big difference between thinking, Something's wrong with me. Why am I angry? I shouldn't be angry. I should release my anger. Something's wrong with me. And there's a lot of anger in me. I'm really pissed at that person. It's just not safe to bring it out. Those two are totally different worlds. Person who says, I understand exactly why that isn't me. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to write an essay about people like that and post it on social media and write a book about it. I'm going to become an activist. Even if I can't tell that person, that can live and become part of me. But if shame rules, I never do that. I never make integrate yeah. that power, capacity, yeah. voice, truth telling this into myself. I just think I'm screwed up and how do I get rid of this? Because I've had people come to me and say, I'm working on my anger. It's still there. It's still there. And I think shame is operating. What do I mean? Meaning they have something that's, that's just so against this thing called anger. And then I say to the person, what is your anger like? And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, show it to me with a hand, like make a fist. Uh, I don't, I don't, I've never done that before. I'm thinking of a person. I give them a whiteboard and colored pens. Make an angry picture. That's, that's weird. Let's make some angry sounds. Oh, fuck it. No way. And they're like, I don't, that, I don't think, I'm not comfortable doing that. So I'm thinking, they're trying to get rid of something. They don't exactly know what it is yet. And that's so fast, meaning that to me says shame is operating because shame says this thing, it distorts the thing. And then they say, well, can you help me get rid of it and release it so it's gone? And I think before you release it, let's have it in your hand. Then maybe it'll, maybe you'll speak up, like you said, um, to this motherfucker. And then maybe it'll go away until the next thing. And now you have powers. And then maybe like me, then you're right. My second book was all about activism. Where does that come from? It's part of the own. So I'm not needing to be walking around angry all day. And no, my, no, you, you move it. 
Yeah, it's move. It moved it, and you make it free to move. So now I yeah. see something online about race. It pisses me off. I write an essay. Then I feel relaxed again. But right. It's doing, you express it's, your truth. Yeah, it's doing what it's meant to do. No anger yeah. is a. Is I mean, a I think I, yeah. I think it's really important to understand that we live under a canopy of self hatred in this culture. That the political marketing, religious, and spiritual worlds all depend on our self-hatred. We're controlled with self-hatred. We're shrunken down with self-hatred. We don't even have a beginning of a knowledge that we're holding stuff because yeah, it's been right. so effective. And a very small fragment of originally, but not only patriarchal fuckers get to control humanity in all of these various systems. And the only way they control them is if day-to-day people don't feel sovereign, centered, and have healthy, grounded, energized self-possession and self-regard. The moment we do, we have to change all of these systems. This is the real consciousness war between self-hatred and authenticity and survivalism. Sorry, self-love and authenticity and self-hatred and survivalism. And I think we're at the beginning of that bridge crossing. I'm very concerned we're not going to get there. Because I think technology really, really enables and empowers those who want humanity to be overwhelmed, overstimulated, distracted on their phones, and shamed so that they don't even notice what on earth is happening to us collectively and politically. And so I think at the heart of all of this really is shame and self-hatred. And, you know, I try to imagine, sometimes I used to do this more when I was younger, I was reading Maslow, and I would walk down the street sort of try to imagine the person walking past me in an actualized state, say like a self-loving, not not unhealthily egoic, not a narcissistic state, just really recognizing their value, their inherent magnificence, what they have to bring to the world, living on the edge, the growing edge of their consciousness on a moment-to-moment basis, and how they would stride, and how they would breathe, and how they would relate, and how they would make eye contact, and how they would then never tolerate these shrunken down manipulative structures, any of us. And then they would have to change because there are far more of us than there are of them. Far more of us than there are. I love that you use this. There's so many things that move me about what you're saying, but first is your vision at that moment of the actualized person and your vision of a, I'm going to call it a better world, you know? Sure. Would you have a vision of a better world? And well, where are we going, David? We're doing this work. Where are we going? I mean, yeah. it's good yeah. to do healing work. It's wonderful, but but then what? You know, what are yeah. we what are we leaning into? What are we what are we believing lives below, within, or at the heart of all of that trauma? There's something in there waiting to be birthed, waiting to come alive, waiting to ennoble us, right? So we can be noble, dignified beings again. Yeah. I think shame is a huge piece, but of course. And I know you're, you're writing so brilliantly about it. I read your work and I think it's wonderful. And I think, and I see your videography as well. And I, I think you really understand this, that if we're walking around on a simple level as internalized shame structures, there's not a chance as individuals, as a, as a collective, we were ever, are ever going to actualize human possibility. I think that's, the, I think that's it. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way. Because we're, we're imagining ourselves less than what we are. So yeah. there's nowhere to go from there. You used that phrase before. You said then the, this actualized person doesn't tolerate, and that to me is. And the, he sees through, and he sees through everything. All the all the optics, all the games yeah. online, all the mm-hmm. bullshit of the 
the guru or the religious leader telling everybody to forgive because they want themselves to be forgiven so they can keep running their show. I mean, all of a sudden, all of it looks like just a big load of manipulative fucking bullshit. And humanity says, no, no more. We're going to craft the world that is premised on self healthy self regard and every system flows from it or we dismantle that system. Wow. Everything, everything changes. I'm just hearing the roar there. Feel, and feel, imagine you walk down the street and instead of bumping into a bunch of trauma survivors, blocked up, cluttered with emotional debris, unable to mobilize in a system that doesn't really encourage their finding their callings, their path, their purpose. You will bump into a bunch of people that are enlivened, self-possessed, sovereign, centered, no bullshit, heart-centered, but no bullshit next, right? Crafting a world built on flowing from one stage of their sacred purpose to another and building every system around supporting that structure. And of course, the earth is honored because in that state of presence as a whole being experienced, you realize you are inseparable from your natural environment. It's not your toy. It's your family. You deal with it in a completely different way. And you're not a tangibleist seeking everything in in the tangible realms because you understand that the greatest satisfaction comes from human relatedness in the internal world and the finding of path and purpose, right? So that's healthy self-concept, not narcissistic. You're totally connected to 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 the everybody and to the everything. You bring your offering to the world gladly and with reverence. And you always come back to the belief that you have value, your birth because you have value, and your body, which keeps saving you every second of every day from all the fucked up shit you put into it, keeps reminding you that you have value. The body tells us we have value because the body keeps cleaning up the debris for us of what we put into it. And we don't even realize that it's telling us we have value. It's showing its love for us because we're trapped in this shame self-concept. Sorry to take over, but I, I no, just, no, no. I'm, so much I'm just, I'm, I'm reveling in your passion and your grit and your raw, you know, in your voice and then all the intelligence that you're, that is being carried by that and your vision. We need those. We need that vision and that I'm using my words that they're not yours, but the, the urgency, passion. urgency, the, the smoke in the sky here, there's urgency. We have a fucked up humanity fucking up its home. Over and over and over again. What do we need? How catastrophic does it have to be before we wake up to the urgency? How catastrophic does it have to be before we realize we actually have something to offer? How catastrophic does it have to be before we realize that the fucking forest is our family? Pretty damn catastrophic. Apparently. Apparently. This to me is is the function of shame and unshaming. The function of shame, if you walk around in the catastrophes and the drama meeting bumping at the trauma survivors and and hatred and self-hatred and it's all and self-hatred and it's all the same eventually and, so, and then the, the thing the question i ask that leads me to the shame study for my life's work is how come i don't notice i meaning i meaning anybody right mm-hmm. how come i don't notice hate that's a pretty hate's a pretty strong thing and it exists i'm totally with you it exists in, a, in incredible subtle ways and, and, and not so subtle, in not subtle ways at all, right? We have a Jewish background. It's like, it, I, we, I know hatred. I know that in my bones. I know that in my story. How come my system doesn't, when that person, when the hate comes at me, how come I don't register it necessarily? 
as hate. And I think that's where that's shame's function because of that. Because I because when I've been hated, hurt, injured, abused, whatever, however you would frame that, violated, I have been shamed. The witnessing. So therefore, you can offer me a solution full of hate, David. You'll never be okay unless you buy my three products. And I don't notice hate and manipulation. And of course, you're used. It. We've been manipulated in, in this system, of course. Yeah, I don't notice it because the gaslighting or the shame that's in me is so pervasive. That's why I call it a master variable that I don't notice that you're hating me. I just think maybe you're bat- maybe you're battering me because you love me. Maybe you're putting me down everywhere because you're trying to help me be a better person. If I'm in a shamed universe, I don't know the difference between what you're calling love and hate. My psyche doesn't know hurt because I'm out of touch with it. It doesn't have my protective instinct. I think something's wrong with me. It shouldn't be there. So then this happens on an ongoing basis and I'm out of touch with that. So people need to be restored to that, what I call it, unshamed, that unshamedness, which is thought to look at your qualities and your experiences and your stories and the things that you think are screwed up about you and use those as the doorways to begin believing yourself because that's because they entered over there. If it's skin color, let's enter skin color. If it's your two, whatever it is, you're two this, you're not enough this, you're still this, let's enter right there. And if we enter there, that unshaming begins and you start to not only get help with the meaning of your anxiety, which may be something really important and not just get over it, but then you start to believe in your own experience. And then these things that I think you're talking about are more free to happen. I think I will express myself. I think I will try to tear down systems that are hurtful. I think I will try to sing the song that I've always been, write the poem and share it with people. Those kind of things then begin to happen. The flowering, I call that, of the being happens. I don't know how much time we have left to mm-hmm. pussyfoot around this. I feel as though there's a, a consciousness war between shaming structures and self-honoring structures that mm-hmm. has to take root and that's a good way and, to say and, it. And I get that it's very hard for many of us to even notice that the advertisement that's trying to sell us thing is inherently building upon our shame, reflecting back to us our shame, because it's all we know. It's all we know in the family. It's all we yeah. know in society. It's all we know everywhere. That's why I say it's a paradigm. It's, it's a whole way of being. It's not just it's an, it's an idea. It's like the earth is flat and that's all I know. So you'd have to, you have to change my worldview. It's not just like David, you two plus two is, is not five, it's four. That's an easy correction, but a paradigm correction, that's a consciousness change in a fundamental way. That's a different animal. Well, creating a world where everybody uh, has healthy self-regard and, and a burgeoning experience of self-regard may be the only way we can change anything because it's been my experience that if I'm, riddled with self-hatred as I have been in stages in my life, I just accept everything as it is because I can't imagine that I could possibly impact it. And then when I start to feel more empowered, I start to notice things that I otherwise don't notice. And then I start to get angry about things. And then I want to get my feet on the ground and do something about it. Um, So I think what you talk about, about the validation of people around you, I think that's that's really crucial. I mean, as a collective, we need to empower one another to find our voice, to find our self-regard, to find our callings and offerings, to break free mm-hmm. of the shackles of a system that keeps us small for the benefit of a very small and supposedly elite few. There's nothing actually mm-hmm. elite about them in the sense of the true meaning of the word elite, but let's say elite wannabes who basically control all of these systems for their own benefit and everybody 
stays manipulated and shrunk down. And I mean, I'll go, I'm going to go on about this forever for a long time now because I get it. And I'm a 12 year old again, you know, when I was 12 years old, I wrote these words I and mean, I was talking about my family and the world around me. in accordance with the rules as dictated by the heroes. We all must be as one with, but no exceptions. And I'm back to it now. I think, damn, you were smarter at fucking 12 than you are at 60 years old, honestly. And then I joined the world and tried to make my mark in the world. I did all those different things. But now I'm back and I go, I get it. This is exactly how it works. And, you know, I, it was easy to blame my parents back then, but they were caught and trapped in the exact same system I'm entrapped in. Yeah. I mean, it's the yeah. same yeah. system. So, again, we got to come yeah. back to a vision of possibility. What does an unshamed person look like? What does a self-validating person look like? What does a healthy self-concept feel like? And how does that live itself out within the collective? I mean, wow, that's the world. Otherwise, what are we doing? What are we striving for? And you adverted to it. We're doing this healing, but what are we doing it for? Where are we going? Who are we wanting to become? That's something more than or something beyond or something at the heart of the healing. There's this beautiful, magnificent humanness waiting for us to empower the possible human as genius said and joseph campbell wrote brilliantly about this stuff yeah. and um, today I t- a, w- a student asked me uh, she said i've been working on grief for a long time i still have this grief it, it still comes up and i try to do these and these things and this grief still comes up and i said well we can work on that and look at that somatically and go into that and understand that and i said but let's start with this idea what if grief is a deep intelligence that you have. What if grief is one of your friends? What if grief is your connection with grief is a gift of yours because we all don't know how to sit around and sob about how painful. Let's just explore that for a moment. And then they can see her face change. I see the color in her face. Mm-hmm. I see her eyes change. And it's all I've done. I also could sense her because I think she does have a gift in that area. That's being looked at as if something's wrong with her. Shame. And this is what you're talking about. First, that change. You're saying, what does the change look like? In that person, it looks like taking something that she thought was like a kind of pathology, a sickness we should get rid of and a symptom of a disease that we should cure to a person who's got a gift, who has a sacred purpose, as you say. Maybe she's going to make grief circles. Maybe she's going to write grief meditations. Maybe she, And I think those kind of things were all within her possibility. But as long as it's held as a pathology, not as a connection with something that can grow, not shrink, but grow and deepen and the understanding of it can deepen. Then I think we have in that, in that one example, what you're, what you're talking about, moving from a shamed universe, if I can call it that, to an unshamed. Oh, this lives in me. When I was a child, I tried to save my mother from my father's violence. Not the greatest role for a child. Most people would know that's not a role for a child. We get it. We get that I should then start saving other partners and that's not the best relationship. I've done that. That's true. And here's the, here's where the unshaming comes. There's a part of me that wants to save people from something brutal. Yes, you shouldn't have to done that as a child. Yes, we should help you with the patterns. Yes, that was an abusive dynamic. Yes to all that. Let's help you with that. But don't throw away that impulse. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to write a book about activism. Maybe you want to write a whole book about gender. Maybe you want to write a book about race. Maybe you're going to make your whole life about trying to make a better world out of that deep child's impulse. Clean up the old, but don't throw away who I can become. I think I'm still trying to save things, but it's it's expanded. It hasn't shrunk. It's nice. Expanded. Nice. You know? like, uh, at the, like at the heart of the pattern, there's an archetype. 
right? That's the way to say it. Yeah. The, like the activist is an archetype, the warrior is an archetype, the healer is an archetype, and That's it's right. it's obviously not at the place that you want should be doing it because it's right. it's not healthy for you and not yeah. necessarily helping the world a better place. I totally understand that. That's great. So that's a things always things always start. Like, you know, all revolutions, I'm going to say, start with something that looks like it disturbs. It doesn't look good, right? I break the window first, right? I take too much out on one person that belongs to three others. I get it, right? Or I speak out and people say, that's a little bit rough. And I'm like, yeah, but I've held myself back for three generations. So it's going to be a little rougher. Sorry, it'll get gentler, but this is how it goes. So it's everything starts out in a less tasty, beautiful, fluid way, even including in the child. But eventually, it's the raw material, right? You call that the archetype. It's the raw material. If we don't shame it, then we find genius in it in those things. And yeah, nuggets of gold. Beautiful, beautiful. I love that. Your What's book. In your mind, how? Which is this time? Or how? Yeah. No, I mean we we got time. We can do whatever we want to do. We can um, do anything we want to do. Oh my god, that's something. Are you yes. crazy? What's wrong? Isn't with that you? shameless? It's shameless. Is what? <laughs> so you your can't book. Do anything you wanted. You want to do anything you want to do, Jim. Well, we can talk. We can we can talk. <laughs> I know, no, no. There's a great story. You mentioned Joseph Campbell. There's a great story he tells about two parents, a mother and father, and they're in a diner or a restaurant with, and I can't remember what they're there. It's a son or a daughter. There's a child with them. And the waitress brings tomato juice, I think it is, and different juices. And to the child, they give the tomato juice. And the child pushes the tomato juice away. The father says, Drink your tomato juice. And the mother says, don't make her drink the tomatoes if she doesn't want it. You know, you know. And then the father says, what do you mean? Look at where I've gotten in my life. And it's not because I've done a single thing, just because I wanted to. Interesting. And he's proud of that. And maybe should be because he may have had to do all kinds of things. Survivalism. Yeah. But nonetheless, but then you have this sense of just riffing off of your, we can do anything we want. But then this person's like, to be a noble person, don't do anything you want to do, right? <laughs> it's like that kind of, and don't notice that that feels bad to do things that you don't want to do. And don't mm. notice that it hurts your 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 gifts and that mm. your soul is, is unhappy or your depression is entering or whatever. And, and yet that survivalist consciousness, we stand on their shoulders. They built the railroads in the harshest winters, humanly imaginable. And they... The got last me, thing they wanted to America uh, out of out of Russia and in pogroms and yep yeah. right so <laughs> this is so this is why the sort of bridge between the so-called progressives and the so-called regressives the conservatives has to be reestablished because we stand on the shoulders of those foundational beings who built structures put their feelings away didn't look back in order to move forward and get you and I to a place where we can have a conversation about more subtle nuanced and in some so, ways elitist things like authenticity. A, that's right. This is our elitism. <laughs> I remember my father had a, my father's been been uh, gone for about 20 years now, uh, died. And um, he had his first heart attack. So that was probably 30 plus years ago. And I didn't have a very friendly relationship with my father for many years, including at that time, although we were getting better. But I had, and I don't even want to admit this, but I had a kind of contempt for his life to be honest. Like, that's not a good life, kind of. I had that in me. That was part of my fists and part of my breaking the pattern. I needed some of that. It wasn't, I didn't really see him very clearly, but I did need to push against him and declare myself separate and say, I don't like what you did. So all of that together. So he had had his heart attack and he was out of the hospital and he was feeling better. And I said to him with some of the, my kind of contemptish sassiness, 
So what did you, what was your life all about? What's, what's, what's life, what's worth living for? And I'm kind of like, I'm really wanting to know, but I also have this, I don't know that you did it the way I think you should have, right? That was also in me. So he says, without a heartbeat, without a breath, he says, I wanted to make enough money so that your, when I die, your mother would have to change her life and you and your brother can get through your childhood and get through. There you go. Beautiful. And Beautiful. he just says it. And I Beautiful. look at him That's with it. sort of like coldness still in me. And I said, well, I guess you did it. And I still have a little bit of that harshness in me. It was the first time I ever saw him. He broke down and sobbed in my arms. Mm. And I was like, oh, that was Makes me cry again. That was real. Like, hello, Dave. Like, I didn't. Yes. He lived for it. He lived that for was it. His form of love. And I, want, and I wanted something different and I needed something different. Yes, that's true. And that's how he gave it. It's human sociology. That's where humanity was at. And then yeah. he so he, in the same way as you say earlier, there's like the crazy pattern, the fucked up thing. But if you look below it, there's good meaning to it or intentionality. So yeah. it's exactly it below all the craziness and not, yeah. not to excuse this violence or anything like that. Right. But it's understandable in that trapped inside of that survivalist place where you have no hope for yourself, yeah. but at least you're going to make it better for the next ones. That's what he tried to do. Mission accomplished. That's right. Dad, I bow to you. I bow exactly. to your good intentions. It's easier for me. He wasn't my father. It's easier for you. Well, both, both stand it, both meaning. I bow to that and I can feel the love that I couldn't feel at that time in my life so easily. And I know that the prison that he lived in and the suppression of the things that he had led to his violence, right? It was part of the violent structure that he then took it out on everybody. So while he made a nice home, he also made a violent home because he didn't want it because he had a sacrifice. So the whole catastrophe. So I, I fight that part of me that lives in me that oppresses me the way he did. And I stand against some of the values that held him together. And I see the love that he issued forth out of the, whatever, the structures that you say, the sociology that he lived in as a. Of the context. I mean, this is, this is always for me, the line, right? Like we do therapeutic work and it requires us to acknowledge the horrible traumas we endured. We have to acknowledge them, but yet at the same time, we have to, at some point, or we can choose to understand the sociology of the aggressor and to understand that while we look down upon them because we've suffered, the reality is if we were swapped with them sociologically, we would have probably done what they did and they'd be sitting there healing from it just like we are. I do do what he did, what my father did. Not quite. I don't use belts to terrify my yeah, sweetheart. I know about belts. But I use, I've used moods and intimidating mm. styles, so that lives in me. It's tamer, and I also see it more. I did things like my father couldn't do. He didn't know he did that. He couldn't hear a person say that's intimidating and actually take it in, which I can't. I'm glad I have that. And I sometimes don't allow myself certain freedoms the way he didn't have. I get moody and grumpy. There's a hostility that lives around me, and people like my partner, who's sensitive, will notice that. She'll, be, she'll notice a little bit of my father's house when she gets around my chair, if that's where I'm at, right? And we'll be like, ah. And then hopefully, like early on, she would have been intimidated. Now she's like, what's going on? Or I think I'm going to go to another room if you're going to be in that mood. So at least it's a, but I'm not, it's not totally gone. I haven't vanished. Yeah. But there's the evolution. There's the evolution. There's the evolution. You're, you're, you're carrying some of the seed. How could you not? Yeah. But, at the, but at the same time, you're not acting it out in the way that he did, the horrible ways that he did. And yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 I guess what I'm 
leaning into, and I've been leaning into it internally a little bit more lately, is that as I continue to do work to sort of de-shame or unshame, however you language it, I think that it's somewhat helpful after you've acknowledged the veracity of the trauma and the aggression that you endured to start unshaming my ancestry for the way in which they acted out in ways that are so horrible to the receiver, but that in many ways reflected the world they lived in. I love what you're saying. One way it's complicated. It's a complicated line, right? Because you don't want to go so far into the validation of them that you're invalidating yourself. So you have to do this part after you've really honored the truth in your experience. Yes. I think one important way of doing that unshaming the ancestors, the ancestry and those that harmed us and injured us is to locate those qualities, energies, however you call those inside of us and flower them into what they ought to be. Like my father's fury, I'm making fists, his fury, his belts, his rage. I have that living inside of me and I needed to unshame that. That means just like we're going back to the anger conversation. What am I going to do with that rage? He took it out on children. He took that out on me. He, I, that's not okay. Got it. Everybody would agree to that. At least everybody we would know would agree to that. Mm-hmm. Now I have to unshame that. What does that mean? You have some of that father's rage in you? I do. Let's look at that. Witness it. Not as only a pathology and a problem. Just like the smoking. Just like whatever. And then let's see what is in there. Do you need some of that belt? That not to hit somebody, but some of that, ah, I'm going to make this bend to my will. I never would have written my first book if I didn't have that because I got knocked out when I wrote my first book and people criticized me and I was gone for 15 years. I didn't go back to it and complete it. I needed some of that oomph in him, mm. not his, not the belt, not the child. We could take that out of there. Just get it done, Jimmy. That yeah. one. Yeah, but I needed some of that energy that he had in me. So now it's unshamed in the sense that see what lived in you. I can take that further, not get rid of it, not just demonize it, but do something with it. Then I do, then it does live in me in a different way. Anyway, that makes meaning and intelligence, intelligence of my father's anger, not in the way he used it, not in the cigarette, not in the needle in the arm, et cetera. We get that. But intelligence meaning there were things that he was imprisoned by that he could have used that to break out of and couldn't quite do. So I got to break out. I got to use that. And, And you can largely because of those structures he and the rest of them built for you. So we stand yeah. on the shoulders of their insanity in yeah. order to become slightly less insane in each generation. I mean, I think the sociology point for me, I'm leaning more now towards sociology and context than, yeah. than psychology, which I've always loved, because I feel as though when you start thinking about things sociologically, it, it, it and not in a way that denies the veracity of your lived experience, but in a way that helps to broaden your understanding of context, you stop personalizing some of those things, mm-hmm. realize that was their context. And I think it helps to inherently unshame us when we can realize that the whole generation was acting out in that context in a lot of those ways. And even though we experience the aggression and have to heal from it, it really wasn't about us. It was about their context. It's a big thing you're saying in many different ways. And one of those ways is how and when for a person or a group does that introduction or movement or urging into that sociology, how and when is that 
and you're intimating this, is it shaming or not shaming? It's of course the intention and how you bring that out is, 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 is a big part. If a group has been not witnessed for what's actually happened, then as you're suggesting, then it becomes a kind of dismissal in the wrong hands, right? Mm. Well, you know, you understand your father. That's the wrong moment. <laughs> There's a right moment, so to speak, and a right yeah. energy and a right intention yeah. that you're bringing uh, that forward in. Not a dismissive, can never be dismissive. And it's a big thing in the culture because there's so much shame, which means hidden violence, hidden hurt, hidden experience, hidden by shame. I shouldn't, I don't even know I'm having this experience. So if you take a lot of that experience, that's why so much of the trauma work is coming forward and somatic work. People are first. Not first, it's not fair because there's so many different cultures that are doing different things. But in Western culture, especially, there's a, it's only been more recent that people are saying, you have these fires that live in you. you. It's okay to not honor your mother and father in the traditional way and not bow to the, to the yeah. excellent America that you're in all the time. So in that, in that shaming culture, for people to just say, fuck you, dad, for using that belt, which I, which I did at points, is a great you call evolution and evolutionary step. Absolutely. Honored. So it's a when and where do we bring that in given how much people have been told it didn't happen, nothing's wrong. Make believe make believe it when it's not doesn't exist. No, I think we move to the place you're describing, which is the acknowledgement of the suffering, uh the honoring of the reality of your experience, the healing process you engage yeah. in, and if possible. And not with any intention to shame those who don't do this, because sometimes the suffering is too much, to also begin to look at and understand the sociology of their context, not in a way to dismiss them or even forgive them, but in a way to more deeply understand your own experience and to depersonalize those aspects of it that you can depersonalize. Um, You know, it's to me, it's enrealment. It's like, I mean, what is a healthy human? We could spend forever debating that, but I do believe. Those of us who have the capacity to live in the greatest number of threads of reality, to tolerate reality, are healthier than those yeah. of us that keep leaving elements of reality. And I think part of reality is our suffering. It would never gaslight someone who's a trauma survivor. It's ridiculous to me. And part of the reality is the sociology of where the ancestry came from, of course, it's, and the flow of the human species, if it moves in an evolutionary direction. Hopefully yeah. it does. but. We see indicators, not always that it is. So I think it's, to me, it's about being able to be here for all of this again, because childhood trauma and any trauma usually leads people to live in certain little hovels, little places, and not access other aspects of the life experience because they associate it with suffering. So I think though your work, my work is to invite people to be here for all of this beautiful thing. And I think if we get here for all of it, we're going to stop hurting each other and hurting our planet. And we're going to thrive in a way that's actually grounded, real, sustainable, and yeah. honoring of this life experience. It's a great vision. It's a vision. It's yeah. a vision. I'm losing. Yeah. I'm still. I'm coming back to it with passion, yeah, yeah, even yeah. though I see all kinds of evidence to the contrary everywhere I look. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, vision in the best sense. I mean, it's a, it's a worldview. It's a vision that your your sacred purpose is part of what your what moves you to bring yourself. The word healthy. Well, or actualized. Like if we stop talking about what we're, we need to talk about, what do we mean by healthy? What do we mean by actual? 
what are we yeah. striving for as an individual and as a species? Or wh- what is this? I mean, where where we and I, you know, we can't get too linear on it. We have to come in very expansive because it's it's a very vast and beautiful yeah. and brilliant question. But there's not as much talk about actualization anymore. There's not as much talk about health. There's talk about wholeness. Phil right. Shepard's radical wholeness work. I love his writing. Yeah. But what are we talking about if we try to imagine the healthiest, wholest? you know, most authentic, connected, integrated being, what do they look like, walk like, smell like, talk like, feel like, move like? What do they do with their time? What do they not do with their time? Um, I think these are really important questions. That's right. We're really different around that. I don't have that kind of thinking or feeling about what does that look like? I, I, I notice I don't have that in my work with people or in myself. I'm not saying that I should or shouldn't. I just notice I have a different... I have a different worldview than that. It doesn't, I don't have inherently or, or in my work, but not inside of me, uh, maybe on the surface at times, a sense of what healthy is. Mostly that's been dismantled and not mantled. <laughs> I haven't put it together. Uh, it's more been dismantled. Because you're dismantling all the bullshit versions of healthy in your work and you're meeting people where yeah. they are. Rather than yeah, I meet people where they are, and I who think, they could be one day or something. Yeah. That's not when your I work. When I meet a person, or I, when I teach students, I mostly teach people how to f- work with others. And I, one of the things I say is the people is is interesting about the health. I say I am I don't have a model of health, and I'm going to teach you how to work with people without a model of health. That means it's not better to do this or this, but but I'm going to give you a model of witnessing, and that I believe that if you do that. The person will show you their next step hmm. in their life path that that will happen reliably, like within 20 minutes. I can I can I can work with somebody and reliably say this is what goes next for them in their life. It's right for them. This movie is sustainable. They're likely to do it because it's already built into their system. They didn't conscious. They were conscious about it, but they can get support about it and become aware of it. That I know. But where should they go? Where will they get if where will they get if they were healthy? I have just found like when people bring that in, it makes them blind to looking at the other person. That's my view. Anyway, we did, it's okay to debate that one. Well, yeah. well, well, I don't think we're disagreeing. I feel as though I could be wrong, but that what you're taught, you're you're doing what most good therapists do, which is dismantling the bullshit versions of health that we've been fed, which includes shame being normal and acceptable. Yeah. And I'm theorizing right now. We're theorizing, yeah. right? It's, I wouldn't meet somebody where they are and put too much emphasis on this. Although I think the question of why are you here? What's your sacred purpose? What does that feel like for you is a a good question to plan. I'm with you on that. I'm with you. But I also think that in your finding this thing called that you call witnessing where they're being, whereas the therapist, you are holding the space, you know, it's almost very Rogerian holding the space, looking at listening, attuning to the other. I think you are acknowledging one of the constituent elements of healthy functioning in the human experience, which is to be attunement and authentic relating and being present for each other. And to me, that would almost always be part of my vision of an actualized humanity. But then what do we do with the person who's not, who's not attuned and their life path? I'm going to make a judgment. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I've seen many people who I don't see that in their life path. I once worked with a person who had a lot of violent stories and I in history, and I said, "Let's talk about that." They said, "I won't bring, I won't talk about that." 
Well, you, well, you were meeting them where no, but you're attuning by meeting them where they are and, and accepting that I had a client. But that person, that person, I don't think, I, I don't think that person has a path of what you're calling actualizing. I don't think that's really genuinely their path. I don't think it's just that they're not up to it or they're not getting the healing. I think their path doesn't look that way to me. So interesting. I just think, and actually, I don't think that's the majority of people's path to unfold their ultimate ultimate path or lived path in this life. I don't know. I don't know the difference exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, are, not, good, these are good questions. Yeah, I'm not really. Sure, questions. I'm not really sure. I just think that lives in the diversity of our experiences. That lives in me and in them, and their path looks different. And now what do I do with that part of our our diversity, our part of our planet, that part of myself at times, but I'm I have a, a different kind of path. Like I was interested Well you meet in, them where they are. I mean I think that's what you're doing. You're you're meeting them do. where they you are. Along that way doesn't yeah. mean other people should hang around with that person. I'm not suggesting that. Like sometimes I'll work with a couple. I mean, by the way, I don't do almost any therapy these days. I'm I'm, I'm basically teaching and writing. I was thinking about working with a couple when we were talking, and one person was pretty obnoxious to be around. And the other person brought them to therapy because that person wanted that person to change. And I sat with that person and the two of them and talked to them about how they are. And I thought, this person's giving me every indication they are not open to, interested in making that change. So I say to that person, you have every right to be that way. I don't, you don't have to be in therapy and you don't have to change. And then I turn to the other person and I say, that's who you're with. Not as a put down. I'm not trying to say, that's who you're with. Well, you're, no, you're, no, you're just being reality based. That's your person. So yeah. you could say, now, if you're, if you're sitting there dreaming, hoping, imagining that person's going to change, it doesn't look like that to me. I'll say that right in front of that. It doesn't look, that doesn't look like who they are. It looks like they just hate themselves thinking that they're not, they shouldn't be this way. I'm not saying it's a good way. I'm not evaluating it. I'm not saying that it's not abusive for you to be around that person. That's them. They get to say, I'm going to stay this way. And then whatever, they suffer the consequences. If they go to jail because they screw they, that happened. I'm not saying there's no consequence for that. But for the other person, I genuinely think it doesn't look like that happens. Now you get to do your thing. Be with them and learn more about your childhood by recreating that. You get to walk away. You get to fight back and learn about your strength. You get to love the person anyway. I don't know what you get to do. but So in that way, I'm thinking, I don't think it's perfect because I don't know if I'd use that word, but I would say this is the condition. Let's put it exact. Let's make it. Let's put it as it is. And then hopefully the thing will start doing what it is. Hopefully that person says, I'm not bringing you to therapy anymore. I'm going to work on it myself. You know, I'm going to go to therapy myself. <laughs> hopefully that person will eventually do that because, because that looks like where it's going to me. If, if it would take the next step, I think that person would say, actually, I really want the help and I don't want to spend money on that person anyway. <laughs> and maybe I'll get so much help. I'll leave or, or whatever I'm going to do or go out like artwork independent of that person. I'm not sure what that person's going to do. Got it. So this is great. So I feel like we're, talking about the sort of distance between meeting somebody where they are and then also holding out the possibility that everybody's carrying some beautifully reverent, you know, enlivened sacred purpose. And it's not for me to say what that is for anybody, but I'm not going to give up on the belief, no matter what form somebody is in. Jeff, give it up. Jeff, I'm, let it. Jeff, I absolutely Jeff, you gotta not. let it go now. And you I also, be, and I also know this one thing from my life. <laughs> no, I know you are. I also yeah, know this one thing from my life, which is that I know. I'm sure you would agree with this. That if there is something in there 
that is wanting to shift, it won't shift unless it's accepted as they are. And I've had that happen with me. When people jump in and try to correctively listen, it never gets anywhere. When they right. meet me and accept me, I feel like there's I'm mm-hmm. held in some kind of a loving embrace and I'm more inclined Absolutely. to move in a different direction. You know? but, here, but here's a different framing for the shift. For that person, and for that person I'm thinking of, for instance, and that would be not only that person, their shift is in coming out more solid and more immovable than they were before. That is their shift. Interesting. So they're thinking, okay, I'll go to therapy. Maybe I am not that good. Right. No, I change. got it. I really Great. don't like myself. Maybe it's not that good. Okay. Right. So actually where they are is not really being okay with themselves. So their shift yeah. is to say, now that I'm really feeling more, you could say that my healing is to say, actually, I'm going to stay this way. <laughs> that right. Is, that's that's a healthy self-concept. That's yeah. their healthy self-concept. Yeah. Because yeah. I'll ask that person, though, that person will be not listening very much that somebody will say you're not listening. And I'll say to that person, I bet you feel like you're trying to listen all the time. They say, how do you know? And I say, that person's trying to be something. They actually haven't felt okay saying, I'm not open to you. you know, I'm not open to your criticism. You may deserve something else. So that is, it's really interesting. The kinds of shifts often look different than, than the, what I would like to see. I'd like to see that person kind of go, oh, sweetheart, I'm sorry I hurt you. That's what I want to see. My heart wants to see that. But the deepest part of me doesn't. My soul, the deepest part of me thinks, please be more of yourself. I guess my view, if I hadn't thought about it this way, but I think I have like a diversity-oriented view, which is it all belongs somehow, and I hope it ripens into that. I guess that would be my sense of um, of change. Do you know, Galway right. uh, Cannell, poet, he's got long gone also. Uh, he wrote a poem was called St. Francis and the Sow, the pig. And uh, St. Francis, the one who loves the animals and all that stuff. And the opening line of the poem is, the bud, the, the thing that could flower, stands for all things. Mm. And I love that. It's like, mm. this is where I do feel like there's a change happening. He says, like, there's a bud. He said, and it could change. But sometimes it needs, what's his words? He said, sometimes a thing loses touch with its, I wish I remember the phrase, it needs to be seen as lovely is his word, meaning seen as something that could flower. That sometimes you have to put your, the, your hand on the brow of the flower, on the brow of the thing that is, is upsetting, that you don't like about yourself, what people don't like about you. Mm. You put your hand on it and tell it in touch and words it's lovely. All right, I remember the phrase. You have to reteach a thing its loveliness. That's my idea of unshaming. Oh, that's your anxiety. That's your anger. I'm going to reteach it. It's lovely. Again, we make that distinction for people who don't get it. I'm not saying go out and beat people up and isn't it great you're angry all the time. But like you're saying, does it belong? Is it part of that sacred purpose? Is it part of what's going to make you part of this wholeness? The betterment, maybe the vision, the better vision of life would be you flowering, in my view. Take yeah. that vision yeah. you're going back into child that's moving you lately and keep going with that. That's wants to keep going. I can hear it in your energy. It doesn't want to be, that's why I was teasing you. It doesn't want to be like corrected. It wants to, it's, it has more energy in it. It wants to go further. Mm-hmm. That passionate in, intensity that lives in you. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your book, Unshamed, you've just signed yeah. a deal with North Atlantic Books. Yes, just signed just signed the deal. Just signed the deal today, actually. Oh wow! Congratulations! Well, yeah. today I didn't know. I, I, I knew I had the yes some days ago, but now we're just doing a little details. Yeah, yeah, I know about them. I they published my first book, Soul Shaping. Um, first book, 
and uh, Gabor Mate and a few other people that are yeah, yeah. doing deeper, in my deeper work. Not the well, they went they deeper. went deeper than Gabor. They practically published Philip Shepard for God's sakes. I mean, the, oh. God bless them, and they're David Bed, David Bedrick too. And they're um, publishing me, so yeah, it's a right. I'm, I'm in good company. And when is your anticipated published date for Unchained? Probably it's going to be fall winterish of twenty four. 24, maybe 25. Great. I look forward to reading your book. And, and you, you. you endorsed your manifestations so beautifully, my last book. So I I'm know. I read it and was letting my heart was touched. And I was like, I let it. I don't remember the words, but I remember they came it's out. Really nice. It's beautiful. Thank you. In the right place. Mm-hmm. Any last words, David? Yeah, my last words are thank you for inviting me and being my brother talking to me about books and publishing and advising mm-hmm. me with your experience that I don't have and being a friend who celebrates my coming out and the way I bring myself out. And oh, my pleasure. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's, I, that's meaningful to me. I appreciate your, your commitment to healthy humanification. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Take care, brother. Thanks buddy. Through stars, hells come straight for.